Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. All right. So as Jamie mentioned earlier today, our portion is Shoftim, which is Judges. Today we're going to talk about, we're going to talk some about what she mentioned, about the king, right? The righteous king. And then also about justice and righteousness, something we talk about kind of a lot. And... Uh, but we're going to start at the back of our portion today, and then we're going to work our way back towards the front. Okay, so let's turn to Deuteronomy 20, verses 19 through 20. The scripture says, When you besiege a city for many days to wage war against it... Actually, I'm going to read from what you're seeing on the screen. I have two things in front of me. Here we go. So, now, when you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, You shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human, that they should be besieged by you? Only the trees that you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down, that you may build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it falls. Okay, so in this passage, of course, it's talking about a time when uh, the children of Israel will be going to war to, to take a city. And the Lord is telling them, do not cut down the trees that are for fruit, or that bear fruit, because they will be fruit for you after you have taken the city, right? But all the trees that don't bear fruit, you can cut those down and use them as part of, of the attack. But now within this, in verse 20, wait, I'm sorry, in the middle of verse 19, the interpretation that we, re- we hear here is, are the trees in the field human that they should be besieged by you? Okay, and that's a, that's a legitimate translation, but it's not the literal translation of the Hebrew. The Hebrew actually says, um, it says the man is a tree of the field. Okay, it says the man is a tree of the field. And so the, real, the literal translation is, the man is a tree of the field, and it shall, not, um, it shall not go before you in the siege. But the thing is, it's saying that it's likening a man to a tree of the field. And so when we think about it in, in the terms of the man being a tree of the field, and the man who, then the man who bears fruit, is one who is not cut down when judgment comes. But the tree that does not bear fruit is cut down when judgment comes, right? The, the, the uh, army of God coming against a city to destroy it, right, would be a judgment of the Lord. So the righteous are preserved, but the unrighteous are not preserved. Okay, so with this likening of a man of the, of the tree to the field, there, there are many teachings on the sages by this of saying, well, what is this all about? You know, if a man is a tree of the field and they started to elaborate on, well, what about, what are the roots of the tree and what are the branches of the tree? And in some of the interpretations, it's thought that the roots, well, there's many ways, you know, of metaphor that you can do, but in, in one case, they're talking about the roots being the acts of righteousness, the works that people are putting into place that they know how to do, and the branches could be a representation of the learning, okay? So as you learn, your, your branches grow, and then, of course, you're working, and as you do the things you're learning, your roots grow deeper and you have a sure foundation. And so they speak of when the winds come, if you have much learning but don't have many acts of righteousness, then the winds that come will quickly uproot you because you don't have a strong hold. But in the event that your acts of righteousness are many, then when the winds come, you will not be uprooted because you will be firmly rooted by the extensive root structure that's developed. Right? And so in aspects of thinking what holds the greater importance in that scenario, the greater importance is to do good than to spend time in much study. Right? 
Now, then of course that brings up the, the challenge of, well, how can you do what is right if you don't know what is right? Right? Because you can't have all roots and no branches. But the also, if you have all branches but no roots, then you have no, you have, you have no standing, right? And so it's really the two working together, both the aspect of learning what is righteousness, learning what is the command of the Lord, what is, what is his revelation, and now let us walk in it, right? It's the two working together. And then from that place of having a deep root structure and having many branches, much fruit can come forth. So when we, when we talk about uh, the tree, there's also in Jeremiah 17, 7 through 8, man is again uh, related to a tree in, in which he says, blessed is, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. So within that, there's so many beautiful images, right? You think about a tree that's planted by streams of water. It just brings to mind Psalm 23, right? How God causes us to, to dwell in righteousness and, in, and he leads us in peaceful paths and he sustains us. And even when trial comes, because we're nourished by that stream, by those waters of life, we can continue to bear fruit and not be anxious. Okay. Now, continuing on with some of these, these themes, when uh, John the Immerser came to clear the path for the way of Yeshua, right, he came t- teaching repentance. And he said, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Right? So again, once again, people are related to trees and the aspects of acting upon the call to repentance leads to preservation. And right now, you know, we're in the time of Elul. We're in 40 days leading up to the Day of Atonement when we will be sealed in the book for the year to come. Sealed for good, right? And during this time, we're seeking to repent and to make restitution for for the things that we have wrong. When we have a grievance with our brother or sister, you know, we're to repent, we're to make it right. You know, if if you can in the physical make something right that has been wrong, then we're called to do that. And in this time, to repair our relationships, to make ourselves right with man, and then to come before the Father, right? At his time that he's appointed. And it's, it's similar to what Yeshua said. You know, if you're going to bring an altar, or if you're going to bring a sacrifice or an offering before the Lord, and you come to bring it, and you realize that you have something against your brother, go and make things right with your brother, and then come back and make your offering. So the Lord calls us to repair our relationships with one another, and to come in, into his presence. Now, during this time of Elul, the teaching is that the king is in the field, right? That he has come out of his chambers, and he has made himself available to us to a greater degree. And the scriptures say, seek the Lord while may he, he may be found. Well, right now, I mean, he can always be found, right? But there's times of favor. There's extra times of nearness, and this is one of those times when he's saying, I'm coming to you. Now will you just reach out? I'm standing at the door and knocking. Open that I may come in, right? And bring me into those places of hurt that need repair. And he will bring that restoration, right? And so then we approach and we come into, uh, once this month ends, we come into the month of Tishri. And we come into Rosh Hashanah, the new year. And we have 10 days of awe leading up to the Day of Atonement, right? Once, when, when Rosh Hashanah and the Day of Trumpets comes, we sound the shofar, and it's a, it's a wake-up call, right? It's a wake-up call for those who haven't been already awakened themselves, right? It's for people who've gone along and just been going back about all the things they've been doing throughout the year. But then they get this wake-up call, and now you have 10 days of awe, you know? 
But, but we who are looking for the coming of the king say, okay, you know what? We're going to start now. And we are going to ask the Lord to show us what's in our heart, to reveal to us areas that need to be repaired within us, with our fellow, and with him. And then we just continue to walk that, walk that out. You know, so I was talking with uh, someone this morning, and the comment was made, well, you know, we do repentance every day. And it's like, yeah, we, we do. But throughout the year, we can kind of become callous, or we might be, uh, be kind of lulled into the natural aspect of life, right? And we're just going about the motions, and a lot of things dull our senses. There's a lot of things to dull our senses. And that's a strategic thing of the enemy, to place things before us, to put something before our eyes that will take our focus off the Lord, right? Well, now in this time, there's just a renewed call to say, wait a minute, I'm going to put aside the things that, have, that are blinding me or causing a distraction, and I'm going to put my focus back on the Lord. Speaking of that, I don't know about you guys, but I've had trouble remembering to say grace after meals. But Ben has been on it. And uh, I love it that he's continually uh, bringing it back up. And, you know, I don't want to let that go. You know, I need to put reminders before my eyes to be like, no, Lord, you have satisfied me and I'm going to give you thanks. Right? In this time, make reminders for ourselves. Set things aside that uh, all the encumbrances that easily entangle us. Right? And let us run with endurance the path set before us. So, and pursue our king, right? So that we would enthrone him in our hearts, right? Not just to be like, he's, he's the king. He is the king, but is he your king, right? So now's the time for us to make him even more the focus of our heart, right? Our true king. So we're to seek righteousness, turn from things that blind us, and we're to seek wisdom when we lack knowledge, and we seek that knowledge such that we can pursue righteousness, right? It's a cycle. Always looking to go further as the Lord is beckoning us to come nearer. And we'll produce fruit in keeping with repentance. All right. So in, in uh, Isaiah 56, 1 through 2, the scripture says, Thus says the Lord, preserve justice and do righteousness. For my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. How blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who takes hold of it, who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Amen. So what struck me in this, in this verse is preserve justice and do righteousness is, is how this leads out. For my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. I see an order in this scripture, right? There's a call for us to preserve justice, that we might walk in righteousness, that the salvation of the Lord will be revealed. Now, there's multiple levels of that revelation, right? There's the revelation of his righteousness being revealed in us, Right, which we can see now and it can be seen in every generation. And then there's the righteousness to be revealed of the true King Messiah who returns. When the righteousness of God is fully revealed in the flesh, in the glorified King Yeshua. Right? Amen. Okay, so with the idea of preserving justice and doing righteousness... And this revelation, that brings us back to the start of our portion. <laughs> okay, so in Deuteronomy 16, 18 through 20, the scripture says, You shall appoint for yourself judges and officers in all your towns, which the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not distort justice, you shall not be partial, and you shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Righteousness, righteousness you shall pursue that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. 
So our portion leads off with God calling us to, or calling the nation of Israel to appoint judges and officers in all your towns and according to their tribes so that they would give righteous judgment to the people. Right? The righteous judgment they give to the people is in, in multiple aspects. It's in matters of uh, how you pursue and carry out the commands of Torah. It's also in, in uh, making decisions about disputes between individuals in the community and, and how law is administered such that justice is preserved within the community and such that the community has a basis on which to operate. Right? It's... Uh, when you think about any society, any society requires laws to maintain order. The laws do not take away freedom, but they establish justice and how people can relate with one another in a way that sustains the community right? and protects the community. You can't have freedom, true freedom, true liberty, without just laws. Right? So God gives the Torah as the just laws for his nation. It, it's a constitution for the children of Israel and the nation of Israel to live by. And it covers aspects of worship of the king and of relationships between man and then man and God. Right? And within this, every judge was required to have uh, seven attributes. Wisdom, humility, awe of heaven, which is awe of God, fear of the Lord. A loathing for money, right? So not greedy. A love for truth, a love of the people at large, and a good reputation. Okay, sure. Uh, seven attributes. Wisdom, humility, fear of the Lord, not being greedy, a love for truth, love of the people, and a good reputation. Okay? Now, that's the requirement for any of the judges that were established. Now, within the nation of Israel, there were three types of courts. One was the, the Sanhedrin, which was there at the temple in Jerusalem. It consisted of 71 members. And then you had lower courts of 23, two of which were there um, at the gates of the temple. Okay, and then, the, then there were others that were 23 that were spread throughout the nation. In large cities, you would have them, and then there was also one for each of the tribes. Then beyond that, you would have in, in smaller groups, you would have what's called a bait dean, which is the court of three. Okay, so there would be three elders who would make decisions for small villages or for local synagogues and, and things of that nature. Okay? And the attributes of the judges that we just read off were required for a judge in any, in, in any of those positions. Now, going beyond that, um, let's see, this did not, okay, I'm going to go ahead and jump to this, uh, Deuteronomy 17, 8, and then I'll come back and talk a little bit about the 23 and the 71, because this is an important part. Deuteronomy 17, 8 through 13 says, if any case is too difficult for you to decide between one kind of homicide or another, or between one kind of lawsuit or another, and between one kind of assault or another, bring cases of dispute in your being cases of dis dispute in your courts, then you shall arise and go up to the place which the Lord your God chooses. So you shall come to the Levitical priest or the judge who is in the office in those days, and you shall inquire of them, and they will declare to you the verdict in the case. You shall do according to the terms of the verdict which they declare to you from that place which the Lord chooses, and you shall be careful to observe according to all that they teach you. According to the terms of the, of the Torah, actually is what it says, of the Torah which they teach you, and according to the verdict which they tell you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the word which they declare to you to the right or to the left. Okay. So what this is speaking of is when a lower court 
comes into a case that is too difficult for them and perhaps they don't have the knowledge to handle it or say it's a capital offense and they don't have the right to hear that, then they must take it to a higher court to seek their wisdom. So the local Beit Dean, which is three elders, can hear many cases. They can't hear capital cases, like if there was a capital offense. They can't hear those, but of, of the disputes in the community, then they would hear those and give judgment where they had the wisdom for it. And when there were questions of how should we carry out this command, then they could give uh, guidance on that. But if anything was too difficult, then they would take it to their regional court of 23 and present it to them. Okay, now then the court of 23 could hear a capital case. But again, anything that was too difficult for the court of 23 would then take it to the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. So there was always an aspect of going to a greater body, to a higher authority, when there were difficult matters. <clears throat> With, you know, of course, greater, uh, there, there's actually greater uh, restrictions or requirements for people who would sit on the court of 23 or 71. They had to have all the seven attributes that the three would have, but in addition, um, to be appointed to the other ones, they had to have achieved distinction in Torah knowledge. Right? They had to have a greater knowledge of the Torah at large such that they could rule on more difficult cases. They were also one, uh, should, have, should know some, uh, knowledge in an, one of the intellectual disciplines such as, say, medicine, mathematics, and such, such that they could weigh in on those matters. And then additionally, they had a requirement that they could not be too old or childless when they were appointed. And the reason why is because they wanted someone who had a family so they'd be more inclined to be sympathetic and merciful. That sounds a little surprising, doesn't it? I mean, in some aspects, because it's like, come on, aren't they there to bring down the law? It's like, well, yes, they're to, they're to deal in righteousness and injustice with compassion and mercy, because that's the heart of the Lord, right? And if that's the heart of the Lord and there's a body that is supposed to administer that, then the people that are a part of it must exhibit that characteristic of the Lord and that heart of the Lord so that God's righteousness and justice is upheld according to his heart, not according to my own vengeance, right? So that's what God's looking for. He's looking for a people who are like him, right? And so then he calls us to him in that, and he's revealed himself to us so we can be like him. But so these aspects, this structure that God put in place was really a mercy and a kindness to his people to sustain them, preserve them, right? Because over and over in the scriptures, we hear him saying, when you come into the land, you'll be careful to do and observe all that I command you today so that you will live long and prosper. <laughs> live long and prosper in, in the land. <laughs> Unintentional. Um, <laughs> but... Um, so, I don't even watch Star Trek. But. He was Judah, though, Leonard Nimoy. Yeah, yeah, he was. That's right. He lived long and prosper. He got the shin right there. Right? Absolutely. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, so God, his desire was life. Right? And so he was going to give every possible way to do that. And, you know, within, our, within the scripture that we read here at the beginning of Deuteronomy 16, 18, it's like, you will judge the people with righteous judgment. Now, when he talks about distorting justice, partiality would be a distortion of justice. And he says, you shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of who? Of the wise. Come on, don't you think you could probably take a bribe and still be okay and judge rightly? I mean, pretty wise, right? It's like the scripture kind of diffuses that uh, arrogance and, and, uh, that, we, that we have and says, no, the bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. 
You know, a bribe is, is many things. It can be anything that's kind of given to you that might garner your favor with someone and cause you to judge them differently than you might someone else. Yeah, you could become in, in a slave to one who has bribed you. And you may not even be aware, right? Because it says, the scripture says it blinds the eyes, right? Blinds the eyes so that you can't even see, right? But it says, no, you don't give in to any of those things, right? Now, granted, you know, we, we do for one another acts of love and kindness, right? We care for one another. And those aren't, those aren't bribes. <laughs> Giving a good gift to someone who's kind of in authority over you or has some kind of, uh, you know, part to play in, say, your advancement or whatever, that could be a bribe, right? So anyway, um, but all in all, the scripture says that righteousness, righteousness shall you pursue, right? That you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Okay. Or, uh, I'm sorry, or yeah. an act of kindness that is expected to be in return as, a, as, of when, as when we do something good for someone. Like, that's a, that's a sort of bride. Oh, like, yeah. I have been doing good to you. Thus, I'm expecting good from you. Right. As a return. So it's sort of a bribing people to be nice to us as a result of us being nice to them. Yeah. Uh, kind of. Yeah, that, on a moral that, levels, respect things from others because based on how we have treated them, mm. you know, uh, and we don't when we don't get it that way, then something is wrong, and we hit, we get into this anger or madness or you know because mm-hmm. we were expecting, we were bribing this person to be nice in return based on how we were giving to this individual. Does that make mm. sense? It it does. Yeah, that's, that's really, like you're saying, that, that exposes an attitude of the heart, right? If we give such that, so that we will receive, then we're not really giving with the heart that we're, we're called to. Now, I should expect that you would do righteousness unto me too, regardless of whether I've done something right to you. So if someone has not acted in a way that you would expect, you know, being disappointed is a natural thing. But then there's a difference, too, between disappointment and offense, right? And if we say, well, you disappointed me, and look how good I've been to you, now I'm offended, right? I don't know. There's, there's, there's ways in which a disappointment that is valid can lead to offense that is not supposed to be the response of our heart, right? Yeah, but... Uh, it's a very good thing to be like, okay, well, I have to look at the intentions of my heart and how I positioned my heart with regard to the kindness I've shown to others, such that I don't fall into a temptation to become bitter. And that, um, what Chris was just saying is, um, you know, just made me think about what Yeshua said to John the Immerser, to John the Baptist, when he said, blessed are those who are not offended by me. And John had offense in his heart because, you know, the ministry of Yeshua, what he was doing, he wasn't bringing the kingdom in the way that John the Baptist had thought he would at that time. And so there was disappointment, which is okay, can be okay, but it's how we allow that to posture our hearts. And so we don't turn that into offense against the Lord. And so that's what Yeshua was coming to correct him on and say, hey, Blessed are those who are not offended. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really good because you're right. John the Immerser, talk about someone who might have a right to be offended for uh, things not going the way he wanted, right? Here's a guy who's of a priestly line who went out into the wilderness and didn't partake in all of the extra, extra things that the priests could have. Instead, he ate locusts and honey, right? And he spent his life, dedicated his life to preaching repentance to prepare the way for the Lord because he knew that's what his call was, right? As a Nazarite, and now he's in jail 
and the one that he knows has been revealed as Messiah isn't breaking him out yet, right? And then Yeshua says, I'm not breaking you out. Okay, but, but John, don't take offense. Blessed is he, you know, who, who doesn't, who's not offended by me, but yet take heart, you know, and um, yeah, we need that encouragement from the Lord and the making right of saying, no, 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 don't go to the place of offense. Instead, continue to trust and wait patiently. And uh, John had to wait patiently, still waiting patiently for the return of the king, you know. <laughs> yeah, very good. All right, so um, here in the, the passages that follow, like in Deuteronomy 16, 28, actually, no, 21 through uh, 17, 8, or 17, 1. How about that? Here we go. Um, the scriptures say, You shall not plant for yourself an Asherah of any kind of tree beside the altar of the Lord your God, which you shall make for yourself. You shall not set up for yourself a sacred pillar, which the Lord your God hates. And you shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep, which has a blemish or any defect, for that is a detestable thing to the Lord your God. So after the Lord has given these instructions about setting up judges and pursuing righteousness and dealing justly, again, the issue of idolatry is brought up, you know, with planting trees or bringing any kind of a uh, blemished sacrifice before the Lord. And then it goes on to talk about not worshiping the hosts of heaven. And the thing that, that struck me here in speaking of these matters was God just said, set this up for justice and righteousness so that you can live and prosper and that you will pursue righteousness and righteous judgments. And then he goes to warn about things that will begin to pervert justice, right? About the taking a bribe and such like that. But then he also goes into even the way in which you approach God. You know, so the, the way you approach man can, can uh, pervert justice, but also the way you approach God can pervert justice. And so he says, stay away from this idolatry of planting trees around the temple, uh, of, of compromising and bringing blemished offerings before the Lord. So he was calling to keep the worship pure and not to allow anything that the Lord has, has said not to do to come into it because even that too would become something that leads us astray. Even if you were to say, oh, well, trees are beautiful and they're a creation of the Lord. Why wouldn't I want to put them around the temple and make it beautiful, right? Surely God loves the beauty of his creation, right? You kind of begin to justify and that can bring things in that actually cause your worship to not be pure and cause justice to be perverted. Okay. So again, um, going back, we, we talked about going to these higher courts to get, get a ruling. And within the scriptures, um, we're going to kind of skip over this part briefly, but um, okay, so God has appointed higher courts who are going to make decisions. And then What's, what's, what's above the court, right? What's above the Sanhedrin? Well, when God was giving this constitution to Israel by which they're going to live, God himself was the king of Israel, right? The nations themselves would set a king of flesh and blood over themselves and he would rule. But God had set it up that he would be the king over all Israel, and then he, the court would be the representative and the priests be his representatives to give civil uh, rulings and then also to minister to the people um, and provide access to God through the services. Um, now then, of course, in the scriptures, it says that 
Israel will in fact appoint a king over themselves because a day would come when they want to have a king of flesh and blood because they're looking for something that, uh, that they can see and they, well, well, they want to be like the nations. And also, a physical present king is different than a, a king you can't see. Right, yes. Oh, wait. How do the judges fit into that structure, like Samuel, like one who can, like who anointed the king? I mean, I know that wasn't the intention to have kings, but yeah, the like big judges we hear of in the Bible. Okay. So the prophets, um, the prophets in many ways, well, yeah, they didn't really, they didn't have the attributes of a king, but they would give uh, rulings, they would hear from the Lord and give messages to the people. They would lead uh, the tribes, um, but they didn't serve as a king. But people would go to them for counsel um, and direction. They, they were outside of that structure, yeah. 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 Also, too, uh, um, during the times of the, the men of the Great Assembly and before this, the prophets were also involved in the leadership. Mm-hmm. So every prophet in every generation was part of the uh, Sanhedrin. So this, beside the high priest who was also involved, who hear directly from God when he went into the temple, uh, was also kind of the mediator between God and the leadership uh, in regards to degrees. Because the beginning of the establishment of the court was that if any matter was too difficult, it'll be brought up to judge um, to Moses, and Moses will bring it up to God. So well, right. that pattern was practiced every generation, um, whoever was the leader at that time, which, was, which will be the high priest who will, if something was too difficult for them to discern and to conclude, then the high priest will bring it before the Lord, and the Lord will dictate uh, the last word on the matter. And, and then once a king was established, then the king was a higher authority over the Sanhedrin even. Like uh, they ruled as a monarch, um, yet a, they ruled as a king who had absolute authority, but yet was still governed by the Torah, right? Okay, so the Sanhedrin played a part in crowning the king. So did the prophet, okay? So like the prophet of the time, like you're saying, Samuel, he anointed Saul to be king, right? And then the Sanhedrin, or, well, whatever rulership, was in place at that time, would have affirmed it as well, and the people. So um, there's a day coming when Yeshua, of course, will be, will be anointed and crowned as king by the leadership of Israel. Right? And that actually is required to happen before he can rightfully take the throne on the earth. Okay? It's, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting because... Uh, God tells Moses, do everything according to the pattern that I have shown you. So by looking at the physicality of all this, this is the image of what is going on in the heavenly. This is exactly what is going to come down from heaven, the new Jerusalem, down to earth, and will rule the nations. This, this is a picture of it, but as we have it today and in those previous generations, there, there, uh, there were in a more what do you say, humane position that would compare it to the way that it will be during the times when Yeshua returned and he established his kingdom, there will be a more perfect kingdom, more perfect uh, uh, leadership and, and ruling. But this is a, this picture gives us, it's like the book of Hebrews said, this is a shadow of what is coming. It's yeah. literally showing us what's coming uh, by looking at this and what Yeshua is doing in the heavenly realm uh, in regards to the way he judges the world, and etc. Right, yeah, because right now, Yeshua is king, right? He is king, but his kingdom on earth has not been inaugurated, but it will be at his coming and at his crowning as king by the leadership of Israel, and then he will have that rulership over all the earth where what is in heaven 
will be manifest on the earth, as Diego was saying. And so, you know, speaking of Moses, Moses served uh, multiple roles. He served as a prophet, he served as a priest, and he served in a role like a king. Like, he, he was not a king, but uh, many of, much of how he functioned would have been in the aspect of a king. And so Moses tells us that, uh, actually God says that he will appoint a prophet who is like Moses. In Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 20, the scripture says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb, which is Sinai, on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire any more, or I will die. The Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among them, or from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. All right, so the Lord says that he will bring a prophet like Moses to the people, right? And so from this, the sages say, well, the, if that's the case, then the Messiah that is to come will be like Moses. Moses was the first redeemer. The Messiah to come will be the latter redeemer, the last final redeemer in the redemption. And so when we look to what the Messiah will, look, will, will appear like, what he will do, we know that it will be likened unto Moses, yet greater. Okay, that's one of the, that's one of the messianic expectations is the Messiah to come will be the greatest of all. He'll be more wise than Solomon, right? He'll be greater than Moses, the greatest prophet to, to exist. So the Messiah would be a king. He would judge righteously. He would be greater than all, and that he would lead the, the children of Israel back to covenant faithfulness with God and lead them back to keeping the commandments rightly. Right? The, the, the expectation is that when Messiah comes, he will clear up all misconceptions and misunderstandings such that we can carry out the desires and the commands of God rightly according to his ways. Okay? Last week we talked a little bit about that, about how important it was that the, that the prophet who does signs and wonders also calls the children of Israel to walk in faithfulness to God. Because if, if they aren't calling the children of Israel to walk in faithfulness to God according to the Torah, then they've disqualified themselves, right? And so we know that Yeshua is this Messiah who, is, who, we, who has been desired to come, who has come, and who is coming again, right? Uh, both the observant Jew and the, the Christian are looking to the coming reigning Messiah, right? We know him to be Yeshua, and we know him to be the true king. Now, Deuteronomy 17, 14 talks some, actually, I'm sorry, 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. Nope, that's not it either. Sorry. Deuteronomy 17, uh, 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God gives you and possess it and settle in it, and you will say, I will set a king over myself like all the nations that are, that are around me, you shall surely set over yourself a king whom the Lord your God shall choose. From among your brethren shall you set a king over yourself. You cannot place over yourself a foreign man who is not your brother. Only he shall not have too many horses for himself so that he will not return, to the, return the people to Egypt in order to increase horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall no longer return on this road again. And he shall not have too many wives so that his heart not turn astray. And he shall not greatly increase silver and gold for himself. It shall be that when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself two copies of this Torah in a book from before the priests, the Levites. 
It shall be with him, and he shall read from it all the days of his life, so that he will learn to fear the Lord his God, to observe all the words of this Torah and these decrees, to perform them, so that his heart does not become haughty over his brethren and not turn from the commandment right or left, so that he will prolong years over his kingdom, he and his sons amid Israel. Okay? So this is what God is laying out as an expectation for the king who will rule over the children of Israel. It's one who will not be self-seeking, the one who will do only the will of the Lord, who will speak what the Lord says, as we, as we read in the, in the prior passage, and the Lord would put his word in him, right? And Yeshua says these same things many times, that he didn't come to do his own will, but the will of his Father. You know, and the words that he speaks are not his own, but the words of his Father. He's saying these things as a message of, I'm the prophet who has been promised, right? He's, he's saying that as a, a revelation of who he is. Now, the scripture here says that a king will write for himself two copies of the Torah, okay? Now, one copy was to remain in the treasury, and one copy was to remain with the king at all times such that it would continually be his meditation and continually be his reminder that he's not outside of the commandments of God, but rather that God is his king and he is the representative of God, right? Now, kings um, in Israel were understood to be anointed, right? And the word for anointed is Mashiach, okay? And so David actually speaks of that when when uh, Saul is trying to kill him, and he says, how could I reach out my hand against the Lord's anointed, against the Lord's Mashiach, right? So the king of Israel was known as the, an anointed one, right? But yet there was still the expectation there would be the coming r true anointed one for all time whose kingdom never ends, right? And so, so we have the the Messiah who's to come, now the Messiah comes, Yeshua has already come one time, and he's going to return again. The first time he came, I'm not aware of him writing any Torah scrolls, right? But he also was not yet crowned as king over Israel, right? It's when he returns that he'll be crowned as king over Israel, and at that time, he's either going to write one or two Torah scrolls. Now, one or two, the scripture says that you write two. What's that? And so the, the comment... He wrote it on our hearts. Yeah. So, so yeah, and I'll, I'll get to that in just a second because that is a key and very important. So, but the idea is that the king who rules over Israel is required to write Torah scrolls. Now, yes, he writes the Torah on our heart, right? And he himself is the, the eternal Torah made flesh, right? So there's a writing of the Torah just in the fact that he came, right? And then there's the writing of the Torah by the Spirit on our hearts, right? But then there's also going to be, I believe, a physical writing of a Torah scroll by King Yeshua because the commandments are not just spiritual, but they're physical too, right? So we have spiritual reality and we have physical reality. Now, the reason why I say there might be one, it might be two, is that it says... It says the king will write too, but in the case when a king inherits a scroll, a scroll or scrolls from his father, he only writes one. So, I have a feeling that Yeshua has inherited a scroll from his father, right? And so, I think he's going to write one. That's my guess, though. I mean, don't take that to the bank, okay? Um, but regardless he will write a scroll of, of, of the Torah and it will be with him at all times because the Torah goes forth from Zion to rule over all the earth, right? And so Yeshua, who is the perfect king, is going to uphold every aspect of Torah just like he upheld every aspect of Torah when he came the first time. The second time will be no different. I mean, in that, I mean no different in the aspect of him upholding Torah. He was a completely faithful Jew he is a completely faithful Jew. He will be a completely faithful Jew. Uh, he is unchanging. And so he will uphold this aspect. But yeah, to think about him writing a Torah scroll, 
It's pretty cool. Yes. I'm just thinking of just, you know, like you said, the gift that he was given, you know, and I'm just thinking of um, at Sinai, you know, when he wrote out the Ten Commandments and stuff like that, and they put it into the Ark of the Covenant. You know, that was a treasury. You know, that's like, that's the, one of the, you know, that was placed in the Holy of Holies. That was something that was there. So that I'm thinking of the idea of just, you know, that first one being a treasure that's there for all times and all eternity and stuff like that and just doing that. So I don't know. I thought I'd share that. So. It's just an idea, but I think it's a really cool idea. Yeah, amen. 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 And so, the first one was broken. Yeah. And so he, he was, his life, and he was broken. Absolutely. Right? And, yeah. then, and then the second one is for all, all, all time preserved. Right. Yeah, that's really cool aspect of Imagery. this. Yeah. These tablets that were 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 created by God and sent down, where the, which were the Torah written on stone from heaven, were broken because of because of the sin. But then they were brought back up the earth. The stone tablets were created by Moses from the earth and raised up, and had God's word again written on them. So you have the resurrection. You have, and then, then what happens? Moses comes back with the tablets, and Moses shines. He's radiant. He's tra- it's the radiance coming back at the return and the bringing again. But it's the same Torah coming back down, right? It's the same Torah written by the finger of God. In both cases, on both tablets, it was the finger of God that wrote the words, right? And so, yeah, you have... Incredible pictures, right? And so you think about that. He, if Yeshua is the Word made flesh, then he was the first set of tablets, and he is the second set of tablets, and he remains the Word, right? And then, but he will be enthroned as king over Israel and over all the earth, right? And the Torah will go forth to all the earth. And within this, if we know that's the reality, we know that he's the true king, He's the coming king. He, he's not here enthroned yet, but he will be. And he says that he will come back when the Jewish people say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So in, in the now that we're living, right, we know his words being written on our heart. That's actually Yeshua being written in our heart, right, because he is the word, right? And then by the Spirit we live, and we have a choice each day to say, am I going to enthrone you on my heart? You're the king, but are you, the, are you my king? And have I placed you on the throne of my heart such that I can live and walk? So then we receive, when we do that, we receive the eternal Torah written on our hearts that we might live by the Spirit. And in that, once we have that written, right, now we got these branches. Right? We got all these branches because we got the knowledge of the Lord being written on us. Now what are we going to do with it? We, we need to send out our roots. Right? We need to walk in his ways and listen to him and to heed every word that he says because the words that he said are the words of God. And so then we see the acts of righteousness going out so that ju- justice is manifest on the earth. Right? That his righteousness is revealed through us that his righteousness might re- be revealed in the Son at his return. Right? Isaiah 54 um, Isaiah 54, 13 through 17 says, All your sons will be taught, or disciples, of the Lord, and the well-being of your sons will be great. In righteousness you will be established. You will be far from oppression, for you will not fear, and from terror, for it will not come near you. If anyone fiercely assails you, it will not be from me. Whoever assails you will fall because of you. Because of you. Behold, I myself have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and brings out a weapon for its work, and I have created the destroyer to ruin. No weapon that is is formed against you will prosper, and every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. So he says that you, when you walk in my ways according to my righteousness, you will not be the tree that is cut down but you will be one that is preserved because the Lord will stand for you. Amen. So we, uh, 
we receive such great gifts from a loving Father who through His Son has reached out to us in a way that no other nation knows, right? And now in this time, the King is in the field. He's drawing near to us so that we can draw near to Him and so that we can seek His mercy because all His ways are justice and righteousness and mercy and compassion and love, right? Um, because that's who he is, and it's who he's revealed himself to be. Amen. Did anybody have anything that you wanted to share? Philip? You were reading about Jer- in Jeremiah about the tree. That's the same thing as Psalms 1, right? Uh-huh. It says he meditates on his law day and night. It would be like a tree, yes. burning plant. And so that's, I see the link there, what you're saying with, you know, studying and reading, you know, what God what God's sent. And then in Deuteronomy 17, when you were talking about the king writing the scroll and stuff, writing the Torah, it says he'll, he'll be with them so that he'll learn to fear the Lord, you know? Mm-hmm. It's not something you just, he just says, oh, one day you're sleeping and all of a sudden, boom, you know, oh, now I fear the Lord. It's character building, right? Absolutely. So take some work. Yeah. So. Yeah, and even the scripture says that Yeshua learned obedience, right? I mean, he was the word made flesh, but he was still learning. And he was still receiving from the Lord and always in communion with him, right? He would rise up early to pray. And his food was to do the will of the Father, right? And he did the works of the Father. And then he calls us to come and do the same, yeah. One more thing real quick, too. I know God talks and talks in Jeremiah about, I know the plans I have for you. I'm not remembering exactly what he's talking about in the reference. But God has plans for us, right? Absolutely. And sometimes... Uh, we forget what they are. We have our own plans. And so in this time of the, of the repentance and stuff, um, God just brings that to, to our remembrance to remind us that he has good plans. And sometimes we forget that we didn't arrive on the scene and make plans and ask him for them. He already has plans. We just need to ask him for, to fulfill his plans for us. Yeah. That, that's a great point, Philip, because even part of the aspect of when we pursue when we go about to pursue the things of life, even th- some things that we think are of the Lord, it's like in this time we say, well, Lord, redirect my steps if I need any course correction, right? So that I may repent of, you know, of going to the right or to the left. Show me what is the way to walk in, yeah. Because yeah, he has good plans for us, and we want to hear what those plans are that we might walk in them faithfully, yeah. Amen. Amen. Now, um, we're, we need to wrap up, but is there one more? Anybody have Michael? Yeah, just uh, one more point going back to the, the Torah scroll. Um, just kind of drawing a couple things together that I was thinking about is on the, the spiritual aspect of that with Yeshua and his father giving him a scroll, right? We know that the bride, the prepared bride is given to Yeshua mm-hmm. and thinking about the Torah being written on the hearts of his people and that scroll being placed in the treasury, we know that Israel is called God's treasured possession, Uh right? So it's placed in his treasury in the hearts of his people and then given to Yeshua, that treasure from the treasury, the bride with that scroll written on our hearts. Yeah, amen. That's excellent. Praise God. Amen. All right, let's pray. Lord, we love you. We exalt you. We give you thanks for you are good and you do good. Lord, we thank you for our soon coming king. We thank you that you have uh, drawn near to us through your son, that you have given us him as a, as a king, Lord. May we seek you. May we seek the king while he is in the fields. And may we pursue righteousness. And may we judge righteously. Or may we, uh, may we act in justice. May any blinders that we have be pulled off, Lord. Distractions that have kept us from focusing on you or returning to you. Lord, may you remove those that we might prepare our hearts, that we might become this bride that is without spot or wrinkle and come before you, Lord, with the Torah written on our hearts and with extending our roots by the stream, Lord, that your ways and your work might be fulfilled in us. Lord, we give you thanks and praise and glory in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. 
If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas. Thank you.